You're listening to the Feed the Ball Salon podcast with me, Derek Duncan. I'm the architecture editor at Golf Digest magazine, and I'll be joined by my co-host, Jim Urbina, golf course builder extraordinaire. Our guest today for volume 18 is none other than Davis Love III, a man who needs no introduction. Uh, Just in case he does, though, he is a member of the World Golf Hall of Fame. He is a 20-plus time winner on the PGA Tour. He won the PGA Championship at Wingfoot in 1997. He is a two-time Ryder Cup captain. He is an assistant captain on the 2021 team at Whistling Straits. He is a co-host along with his brother, Mark Love, of the RSM Classic on the PGA Tour held at Sea Island. And he also owns his own golf design business. And that's what we're going to spend most of our time talking about today. We do start off talking about the Ryder Cup. It is coming up in September. He will be a co-captain. It's at Whistling Straits. So we get into that a little bit to start off with. He'll talk about Whistling Straits and the philosophy of Ryder Cup golf course setups. And then Jim and I start to peel back the layers on his thoughts on golf course design. With a resume like that, uh, Davis Love can talk about anything in the whole world of golf, anything golf-related and often does. But I get the feeling that he doesn't uh, get the opportunity to really dive down deep into his thoughts on golf course design and architecture as much as he does on this podcast with Jim and I. So it was a real treat to talk to him. We discuss his thoughts on design, what turns him on architecturally, what are some of the courses that he draws inspiration from. He gives us some background on some of Love Golf Design's better courses, including the new Belmont course in Richmond, Diamante Dunes in Cabo San Lucas, the Plantation course at Sea Island, which they completely renovated a couple years ago. And we also talk about a a really cool golf course that probably none of you have seen or maybe even heard of. It's called Rice Fields at Hampton Island Preserve. That's because it basically went out of business about a decade ago, but it was located in an amazing setting south of Savannah. The shaping on the golf course is outstanding. It's very Tobacco Road-esque, and that's because one of the lead shapers on the project was Forrest Fesler. Mike Strands' partner, and they got a lot of that out of him there. It's some really wild shapes, some huge, big undulating greens. Uh, the one portion of the golf course, they retrofitted it to create a sort of rice paddy theme where they created these these long dikes and, and strung golf holes across them. Just a really mesmerizing place, and Davis will share his thoughts on that. Right now, I'd like to encourage you, if you would, to go to your favorite podcast service provider, subscribe to Feed the Ball, give us a star rating and a review if you can. Uh, Let me rephrase that, a five-star review if you can. That'll help me out and bump this podcast to the top of the charts. You can follow me on social media. I'm at Feed the Ball on Instagram and Twitter. Jim Urbina is not on social media. He's smarter than I am. Davis is on Twitter. If you can hit him up or give him a follow, he is at Love3D. He's on Instagram, too, at DavisLove3. And we're going to jump into that conversation pretty soon. But first, Jim and I are going to have a little talk about the importance or non-importance of distance and length in golf course design. So we'll start with that, and then we'll get into our conversation with Davis Love III. Thanks for listening. Derek, you know, I'm looking forward to the conversation today, but... As Davis Love was once known for, and maybe still is, as one of the long hitters on tour, I'll be curious to see what he talks about, what are the the finer points of golf course architecture that he's now evolved into. But but I I, want to go back to this this notion that the length of a golf course is is somehow – the most important thing. And and if you don't mind, I'd like to read this quote from Donald Ross. It really supports the ever, ever uh, long belief that, that, that long is not always better. If you don't mind. 
I'd like to hear it. And this is from Donald Ross. Golf has never failed me. But bear in mind that it is quality, not quantity, that counts. In my work, I have repeatedly had trouble making committees see the force of this. They seem possessed with the idea that length is the main desiderum. It is beyond all argument that many a long course is noticeably uninteresting in contrast to shorter ones that are well thought out and skillfully constructed, end quote. And Derek, I, I, I know that you feel much the same way, maybe not the, uh, exactly, but I keep reinforcing this idea that long golf courses aren't necessarily more interesting and that shorter ones can really create the interest level that most, 99% of the golfers need. But I'll be curious again today, like I said, when we interview Davis, if he thinks about length in, in, in golf course architecture and like Tom Lehman, who was also on the tour and still plays today, that length is, is what, what, how important is that to them? Derek, I know you hit him a long way. I don't. So I look for the creative way to attack a golf course and that keens my interest. I'm curious if, if, if you have found a golf course that's long, so, you know, 8,000 yards, 7,800 yards, do you find that to be as interesting as shorter courses? Well, first of all, it's interesting that Donald Ross was dealing with these issues back in the 1920s that are still relevant today. I think you find that a lot, that if you're in the design business, some things never change. And the desire to stretch courses out long and cater to the Tiger player um, is, is uh, evergreen. Um, no, I don't find long golf courses interesting if I have to play them long. I mean, I, you can put me at, uh, Aaron Hills, which can tip out at over 8,000 yards if you want it to, but I'm not playing there. I'm going to find that, you know, nice, comfortable set of tees. Um, and everybody should, I guess it's good to have those options, but as, as far as, you, you know, I think that Tom Lehman mentioned this when we talked to him, you know, he, what we were so stimulated by in that conversation was his, real understanding of how a broad range of people played golf and what what was the true stimulant for golf wasn't you know hitting it a long way for him he recognized that it was being able to find ways to maneuver yourself around the golf course take a certain lines of play and take on uh, risk if you wanted to get something later but also have room uh, to to fail if if you uh, uh, can't execute the shot and not be penalized a full stroke. He talked about quarter stroke penalties, half stroke penalties. So he had a real uh, enlightened viewpoint of strategy and how people play golf. And then he said, and then uh, on top of that, you can put a tee box, you know, far back if you need to for the, for the, the scratch player, the, the plus handicap player. That's how he, you know, would approach it. And I think that's a nice, I don't have a problem with, with having long sets of tees uh, if the land can accommodate it, uh, but but the concept of that 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 would make a course better or greater somehow is is fallacy. I don't know that you know that holds any merit. That you know there's there's no magic number. And we got into this, you know, going back to Ross, but really in the probably in the in the seventies and eighties, I think is when golf architects and developers really wanted that that first number on the scorecard to be a seven. Before that, you saw even on 
you know, courses that were considered the greatest in America, Marion's, uh, even Augusta National was under 7,000 yards for, for many, many, many decades of Masters tournaments. But then it started to creep up, and it had to be 7,000 yards, and it had to be 7,200 yards, and it had to be 7,500 yards. And now those same that same mindset, if you want that championship-level golf course, you know, that now it's 77, 7,800 yards, 7,900 yards. So um, fortunately, though, don't you—and you, I think you'd agree with this, that that mentality is— becoming less and less frequent and having less and less of a dominance uh, in the golf course design business. I hope so. I think you're right. There's that, there was that 1970s push to make them longer and harder. And therefore your golf course would be deemed championship quality, man. That, that's a tough word to say for me, championship quality, <laughs> <Yeah>. because <laughs> who decides when it becomes a championship quality golf course and yes Derek I believe that the trend is starting to maybe level off with a lot of golf courses that that's not as important but man as you said even Donald Ross was worried about that he couldn't convince the committees that longer wasn't better and every architect back in that day was discussing that I hope that's the trend that we can play a golf course at 61 to 6,500 yards and have fun. And you're right, Derek. There are people who describe that, that feeling of hitting the ball 330 and scoring on a 7,800-yard golf course as exhilarating. And why should we discount them? Because we want the golf course to be shorter and funner and more intricate. But there are those uh, select few of, uh, players that – that uh, that is as much of as an important in the architecture par 72 7800 yards as i feel 6500 yards par 70 par 71 is we could debate that forever we could we could poll 20 people and we'd we'd get that we'd get that different uh, sense of oh you got to have it 7800 yards and i would argue it all day but you the ever ever calming effect on architecture, Derek would say, let them have a back tee if it's possible for that, for that long hitter, you know, and then us will move up and play and have, uh, have the fun that we want. Yeah. I think that's why I think that architecture and development is in a nice place right now, because there's room in the argument for both sides. You have um, this new generation of, of resort golf, the Mike Kaiser model where it's not about length at all. It's about uh, openness. It's about getting people around. It's about uh, allowing players to play their own game and be creative and to maneuver the ball and to find success in a variety of ways rather than just in that that repetitious way of hitting the ball far and straight and high. Uh, so you have that, and it's really creating a generation of, of younger players who identify with that, and they're, they're uh, acknowledging that length isn't everything, that it's more fun to play golf in a variety of ways on a landscape that allows you to experience golf in different ways. And yet there's still this other side that, uh, you know, where length is, is kind of necessary. And, and what, what I mean by that is if you go to any high-level high school tournament or, or, or watch a group of, of young amateurs play, college players, they're, they're not stoking their own egos because they hit the ball far. They just hit the ball far because that's the way they were brought up. 
they they just do it without even thinking about it. They can drive, they can carry the ball 300 yards. Even, you know, even high schoolers can do that now. And it's, it's remarkable to see. And they would probably get bored playing certain types of courses where they didn't, or if they had to, if they went to a golf course where, where they had to, like Tobacco Road that tips out at 6,500 yards, they would probably not even pull their driver out at all. You know, they'd be hitting three irons off the tees. And, and I don't, it's it's no fault of theirs. They can just hit it farther. But I don't know that they would get the same enjoyment out of that golf course that you and I do. So there's some balance in there where you just, you know, it's easy to say, oh, well, these these uh, developers and club members were were you know, they, they needed a, an ego bump. So they built these back tees and stretched their golf course out to 7,500 yards. So now they could say that they are, you know, they were the big boys on the block. But there's also this other aspect of the game where because people hit the ball so far now, they kind of need that room if they're going to have a fulsome golf experience. Now, that's still kind of a small sex sector of the game. But, you know, length isn't always bad if you look at it, you know, in those terms, these these kids just, you know, they just, they can't help it. They just they just hit it, and it's not an ego thing. It's just a, a, an equipment and, and skill thing. Thank you for that, Derek. Once again, you pulled me back to reality. Yeah. I don't want to put you back. I want you to live in the live on that beautiful little cloud where there's you know, where it's only sunshine and rainbows. I don't mean to rain on it. Oh, Derek pulls me back. <laughs> Holds me back to I have reality. a way of doing that. <laughs> because you're right. Those kids, they didn't get schooled to hit a three iron 210 yards. They get schooled at those camps and colleges and professional uh, uh, teachers to hit it as far as you could hit it and then go find it. Uh, I totally understand that, Derek. Uh, uh, once again, you, you've, you've pulled me back to reality. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's funny you know I, uh, I and I was thinking about this I was I was texting with um with Dana Fry recently and when he was on on the salon podcast with us he talked about his his uh his his stepson who is 16 or 17 and he just knocks the piss out of the ball and <laughs> I was thinking about him and because they're they went spent the whole summer on this long golf trip and he sent me some videos of his of the boy you know hitting the golf ball and you can just tell that that ball just rockets off the club face and it lands yeah. somewhere 310 or 330 yards out there. And, yeah. and he, yeah. he's not doing it. That, that's a good thing that he can do that. You know, we should, yeah. we should celebrate the skill Agreed. that he has, but he needs Agreed. certain types of golf courses for, for him to, for, for that skill to pay off. Rory McIlroy needs a long golf course because if he's the best driver of the golf ball in the world, he wants, yeah. he needs to use that as his advantage to beat his competitors. So, yes. That's that's one side of it, but for the rest of us, yeah, length length shouldn't matter. And I, I'm glad that we're in this this space where um, more and more people, probably than ever before since the 19 teens and 1920s, embrace shorter golf courses that have more that require more artistry to play than than uh, than power. And I appreciate that because I recently attended the 119th Western Amateur at the Glenview club, a golf course I restored in uh, golf, Illinois, by the way. And the winner uh, or, or one of the leading candidates going deep into the match round was Thorb the Ornson. Yeah. And he would hit it 
300, I was, I had my rangefinder. He was hitting at 310, 320 with accuracy, laying this ball right in between these pinch points in the bunkers designed by William Flynn. And I don't know that he thought twice about hitting the driver. And you're right. It was a, it was a joy to watch that, that skill level that those guys were never out of, uh, out of touch with wherever they hit the ball, their good soft hands, their putting, their chipping, their wedge play, the three iron, the driver. There is a skill set for that, Derek. And, and thank you for reminding me that why should we discount that skill level that they've learned to, to, to master. And I've learned to master the three metal on the ground, 200, <laughs> 210 to 230 yards. That's my skill level. So we each have one that's different. Yours is different from that's that. That's right. That's right. They can't do what you do with your three metal. No. Well, they probably no. could. They never really thought to try. <laughs> Why would they? <laughs> speaking of speaking of um, young, ex- incredibly skilled players, that that describes our guest, Davis Love the Third, was um, well known as a as a teenage golfer. A lot of it because obviously, like his father, Davis Love the Junior, was uh, one of the most respected uh, instructors of the game in the country. Uh, a well-known figure, and and Davis came up uh, with that lineage and was well-trained and was had so much success as a young player. I remember I went to a a, a training seminar, an instruction seminar uh, at Sea Island once, where Davis lives, and Jack Lumpkin, who is uh, Davis's longtime instructor, is an instructor at Sea Island, and he would tell stories about when Davis was uh, a teenager, and they'd go to the range, and this is back in the days when you're they're hitting like persimmon drivers, steel shafts, and Davis would go down to one side of the range and, and start hitting balls, and then work his way up to his driver, and people on the other side of the range who might not have known who Davis was or known he was even there would stop and look down because the sound that that Davis loved hitting the driver made was so different than any other sound that you hear. And I think you kind of get that if you ever spend time on the PGA Tour, you can go up and down the range and certain players just have a certain compression sound that's different than everybody else. And, you know, Davis was hitting these drivers, carrying them 280, 290, who knows how long he was back in the early 80s was carrying it. So he knows something about length. He's always, as you referenced before, been one of the longest players. And um, I'm curious to to get his thoughts on golf course lengths and just golf course design because you know he has his firm. They started their firm in um, in the mid '90s, I think. He and his brother Mark started Love Golf Design, and uh, they've had a really interesting career. One thing that I've always respected about them is that, unlike other many other, not all, but many other kind of professional player slash architect firms, they really only would concentrate on one or two projects at a time. Before the recession, even when there were many more jobs out there, they'd pick one or two projects and and see those to completion, sign up a few more. So they weren't out there spreading themselves across the country. They didn't hire uh, an army of uh, associates. They didn't have um, a whole staff of people. They were really hands-on and small even when they didn't have to be. And that's one thing that I've always respected about them. So we'll talk about that with, with Davis as well, I think. Agreed. I like that. Uh, Well-framed for that, that discussion because, uh, no pun intended, how did Davis Love fall in love with architecture? <laughs> what made that change? What made that turnover? Was the game, uh, was the game not as, as, as enriching as it used to be? And architecture brought him back into the, 
to the analysis of, of, of layouts and of, of, of style and, and of where the shot would be placed. I look forward to that conversation. And I also look forward to the conversation uh, that here's a person that talks about the skill level of golf, has a book out that talks about my every shot. And, and I think, how did he transform that, that, that's, that, as you said, being on the driving range as a young kid, just hitting countless millions of balls, how did he transform that into that love affair of golf course architecture with his brother, Mark, who I recently met in Denver. I'll be curious to see how he portrays that, how he found out about it, what interests him, where he's going with it, with his, with his brother, Mark, and, and the design team with Davis Love. Yeah. And what, what's in, what else intrigues me, and uh, I, I think this is a, a compliment, is that when you play the Love Design courses, whether it's Kinderloo Forest in South Georgia or his work on you know the Georgia coast, uh, his work at Sea Island, um, he's got courses in Southern Mississippi, North Carolina. It's mostly in the Southeast. There's uh, Diamante uh, in Cabo San Lucas. I, I got to go see that. That yeah. one intrigues me the most. I got to go see that. But I'm with you. The ones that you've already seen, I have to. I yeah. have to. And when when you look at those golf courses, you would not. And this is sort of a cliche, but you would not think that they were designed by a PGA Tour player in his his firm. I think in, in the 80s and throughout most of the 90s, if you went to a Jack Nicholas a Nicholas design course, there's something about those golf courses where you said, okay, the pedigree behind this is like very particular. There's something, the way these holes are, are set up and laid out and the severity of the hazards. This is a, a very unique perspective, a very privileged perspective on how golf should be played. Same with um, Arnold Palmer designs. There was they weren't necessarily like laid out as maybe as difficult as Nicholas courses were sometimes, but there was sort of a certain level of of eye candy and the uh, somebody who was used to working with with good budgets and clients who had high demands. There was a certain polish and, and finish to those golf courses that said, you know, you're in a certain category of of golfer. This is a perspective on golf that that is very particular. Love designed courses from his first one called Laurel or first or second one called Laurel Island Links in, in uh, Southeast Georgia. Very low to the ground, very minimal earth moving, very subtle, very subdued, but interesting. You could see the way the greens were set up, interesting angles. So it was just to this day, their courses are just they they belie the fact that that he is a hall of fame golfer who can you know launch the ball into the stratosphere and has made right. a lot of money and has, you know has won 20 times on the PJ tour his golf courses don't read that way and i think that's a compliment they they read well, like re, uh, having a real uh, common basic fundamental strategic understanding of golf without the bells and whistles you got you got me uh, excited to talk to him uh, for sure to see and seek out more of his golf courses. I may have leaned the other way un, unbeknownst to me that it would be a predictable style of layout. Thank you for pointing that out. Uh, Diamante is, is one of them that I, I have to see. And I will certainly, when I go back to Yeamans Hall, certainly seek out the ones in the, in the lowlands for sure. Well, I know everybody's uh, tired already of hearing me talk, not, not necessarily me, you, but, but um, let's, let's <laughs> get me to shut up and let's bring on Davis. We're, I'm looking forward to talking to him, Jim. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, tired of, I'm tired of hearing myself talk. I, I thought you were going to say you're tired of hearing me talk, which I completely <laughs> understand. You're the host. I can't say that. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I'll mute you.
<laughs> All right, here's Davis Love the Third. Got a cool looking studio. Is that at your house? <laughs> this is my bedroom. <laughs> your bed. Yeah. Uh, when I do these podcasts, I have people like you and, and Jim on. There's Jim, and everybody has a nice office, and I'm working out any room I can find a chair and a place to sit. Well, I'm um I'm making do in an in an office in a new house. My first actual office. Well, Davis, are you? This must be really busy for you. Thanks for taking the time to do this. Um, with the Ryder Cup coming up, are you just going 100 miles a minute, even though you're not, you're an assistant rather than the team captain? Well, it's funny you said that because I just got done texting Stricker. When do I need to be here? When do I need to be there? And he goes, "Oh, let me find out." And I'm thinking, I'm bugging him, who he's yeah. swamped. I'm just trying to find out when to show up. So I, I said, I gotta, I gotta go another route and quit bothering the captain to find out when I'm supposed to be doing stuff. But yeah, it's, it's busy. Um, you know, we did a lot of the pre-work last year. So a lot of it has been on hold, but now it's a little bit of different players. You know, obviously there's some guys that have, um, that weren't in it last year and it now like Harris English, for example, mm -hmm. He was not on anybody's radar. So he hasn't filled out any forms or surveys or um, we don't know much about kind of details from him. Now Kisner just jumped up there. So it's a lot of it's been done, but um, yeah, it's just getting exciting. You know, it's around the corner now rather than a year off. Yeah. I mentioned to you that I was just up at Whistling Straits and the caddies were kind of pointing out some some uh, course setup uh, things that have been uh, yeah. going on up there. Maybe we can start off on this topic. When you set up Hazeltine, I think, if I'm not mistaken, you kind of wanted it a little more broad, uh, widen it out. You wanted to, I think, to encourage the, the strength of your players to, to come out. You thought that was an advantage. Is it, right. Do you think it's the same this year? Is that why some of these adjustments will be uh, made? Because maybe the theory being that American players over the course of 18 holes with maybe have a power advantage and that you know you want to let, the, let them show that off with a, maybe a little bit more uh, gracious playing corridor? When we got to Valderrama in 97, the fairways went 280 and then they went <laughs> like five yards wide at 280. Um, Cause we were all, you know, it's Fred couples and Davis love and tiger woods. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. We're going to stop. We're going to stop that. But um, so we've tried to learn over the last four, four or five Ryder cups, how to really, how to be better captains, better prepared. Well, at, um, at Medina, they flew my son in surprise for some practice rounds we were having a month out, two months out maybe. And, um, so my son ended up playing with the club president off to the side. And um, he kept asking Drew all these questions. What is your dad going to do about this? What is your dad going to do? And Drew, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> then he said, what do you think your dad's going to do with the rough? He goes, oh, he's going to cut the rough. <laughs> there will be no rough. <laughs> I do know that. <laughs> because he just knows, like, our attitude is, why take put luck into it? Because if you and I both hit it in the rough, it's 50-50, good lie, bad lie, right? If it's mm -hmm. two or three, four inches, you could get a good lie. So we feel like, and Paul Easinger really mastered this, I think in Kentucky is our guys make a lot of birdies and they like to play aggressive. Let's don't make them chip out. Let's give them easier hole locations and more room to play. Like kind of like Augusta, maybe with easy hole locations, you can get away with a lot and you can still make a bunch of birdies and still save pars. 
I think we're deeper. And if we're making birdie, we can win the birdie contest rather than the par contest. It's kind of the simple way we've got it. Now, Strix tried to do a few things, but our stats guys kind of say, well, maybe that's okay off the tee, but around the greens, we're better in the deep stuff than the ball running away from the greens. So it's, it's getting a little too much money ball. <laughs> like right. we're trying, all right, let's put the T marker here rather than there because of this stat mm-hmm. that, that really doesn't, it's hard to figure that out, but yes, um, we can have a little influence leading up to, but now we're saying, I think a month out or n- near the competition, we just quit telling the Kerry Hay, PJ of America. We quit talking to him about course setup and he, you guys know PJ of America they do the best job setting up a major championship of anybody. So we like care. You know what you're doing. Just don't get so close to the edge of the green with all locations. Give us a chance. And you saw it both at, um, well, we've seen about four or five, well, five, three or four home rider cups. Um, the last few, we've made a lot more birdies. You know, if you go to a baseball game and you're at home, you want the fans to get into it. You want them to hit a home run. Yeah. And you want them to score some runs to get the fans energized we want to make birdies and get the fans energized even if you even if you lose a few holes to birdies um it's more exciting than just a whole bunch of pars and boring golf right is there anything unique about whistling straights that makes uh you know you or, or steve stricker approach the the Ryder cup any differently well from a design design side last time we played there i said somebody needs to give me a little tiny bulldozer and let me fix these approaches to the fairways. And they go, what do you mean? I go, you can't walk from the tee to the fairway. So if you have 40 people inside the ropes, how's everybody going to get up the hill? Well, the only thing that really came of that was no golf carts for the assistant captains because there's nowhere nowhere to drive. (laughs) Thanks, Davis. (laughs) Um, Yeah, thanks a lot. So I got to walk. But you can see that's a Lynx style. It's more Lynxy from tee to fairway and around the greens than anywhere else you know the the wildness of it um so yeah we're gonna you can't go inside the outside the ropes with a cart and get anywhere so we're used to driving where the players walk right well we can't do that at whistling so there'll be no carts so that's the biggest thing and then i think setup wise um we need to play more practice rounds than any other recent Ryder cup obviously it would be nice but paris is hard to do um i think we got beat there on course um, familiarity mm-hmm. uh, more than anything, but um, a lot of practice rounds for this Ryder cup, uh, as many as we can get, even if it's the assistant captains playing and then trying to figure out how deep a rough do you want around the greens? How do you want the course to play? Um, do you want to play more U S open style or do you want it to play more link style? And I think they're leaning towards, um, a typical PGA of America setup with maybe less rough in the fairways. And so, Derek, I go to this question, and I want to ask Davis this. Some of my favorite places, match play golf courses that were recently played, Seminole and Oakmont. Does a golf course architecture layout like Oakmont, Seminole, favor or play favorites with the style of golf that American golfers play today. Yeah, I think um, uh, professionals or amateur or both. Um, I would say I would say professionals because professionals. yeah, amateurs. We just bunted around and and we're happy to get a five and a six. 
but I know that a skilled player wants more from every shot than an uh, average player. Yeah, I think um, we're spoiled. We play on great conditioned golf courses all the time. We like fast greens. I think if there's one difference in, you know, the Open Championship, the British Open, and the rest of the majors is those greens are inherently, and then by design, if the wind blows, you can't have them super fast. So that, that major is always slower. We tend to do well with fast greens. Even my son, the faster the greens, the better he putts, which doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense, but it's what we're used to. Um, and in match play, that's, that's, I think that Seminole was awesome. I didn't get Agreed. to watch much of Oakmont. Agreed. Just because I love, I love Seminole. But to see them have to play a nervy chip or a lag putt when the greens are that fast. That's what the match play is all about. Um, but my, a, a better, a question for you, for you guys is um, a hoopy match play club. Um, we were involved in that with the first developer um, with Gil, but um, how, what, how do you design for match play or what makes it a match play course? To me, my simple thing is there's a lot of risk reward. Um, more than just a plain old kind of boring course where every shot's the same. Um, like TPC Sawgrass. I say we played a Ryder Cup at TPC Sawgrass, we'd win every time. Um, we like that risk-reward. We're used to that golf course. We're used to Pete Dye. Um, so I don't know how – if you told me to build you one for match play, I don't know what I would change, though. I guess you can get away with more, right? And I say you get away with more. You get away with steeper greens – uh, right. bunkers that are in the line of play, cross bunkers, I call them. And so I'm just wondering if a tour player versus an average player sees the golf course much different. I think they do, but I can't ever explain to people how a tour player looks at a golf course because it has to be so much different. Yeah, I think we look at it a little bit. I think the better players, Tiger Woods, Jack Nicklaus, Brooks Kepka they're more like mercenaries. They don't really don't care who built it and what the strategy is. Just, I'm going to take it apart piece by piece. And I'm not going to worry about, you, you learn, okay, Pete Dye, I need to play closer to the hazards, right? Or, you know, Reese Jones, um, I got to hit it in the fairway in a U.S. Open um, to be able to get to these greens that are well protected and you've got to be in the right section of the green. I think we just play the golf course how how it's set up and attack it and we really don't care as much about the experience or the intent of the architect or class we're just going to tear it apart so I, I think we look at it a lot different than the average guy our ratings and, our ratings our ratings list is really different you know how many birdies can i make you know right. where i have to avoid the trouble things like that and so derek that's my leading question does can davis does davis designing a golf course for the average player and how can he separate that the average player from the tour player? That's a great question. And we, you know, we go in to an owner developer, uh, a club, and we say, why, why love golf design? And we say, because we do that, we build for the expert player all the way to the beginner and we always use my mom as an example, who was a great single-digit handicap for 50 years, great player, shot her age a bunch, but she couldn't hit it anywhere. 
if you put a whole bunch of cross hazards and a whole bunch of guarded greens and forced carries off the tee, and she had to play from the front men's tees, she would get pummeled. She couldn't, she couldn't play. But if you give her the proper length golf course for her um, skill level and her age group, um, she could shoot really, really good scores. So I know for a beginner, we need to have farther up tees and for Bryson and Brooks, we need farther back tees. So that um, some people say we got too many tee boxes and too many teeing options, but I think we need shorter courses to get people to play the game. My granddaughters. <laughs> and then we need longer courses because of the equipment and the athletes that we're getting. Um, again, I play with these guys, these young pros around Seattle that you guys have never heard of. They all hit it long, no matter if they're six feet tall or six five. They all hit it a long way. And that's not just equipment. It's Randy Myers, the trainer, and it's the track man and the flight scope and all that stuff. So we build a, a wide, range, wide range of links and try not to have a whole lot of force carries, try not to have a whole lot of guarded greens because we are building for really for the member, not for the pro. Yeah, I've always been impressed with the courses of yours that I've seen for just that reason. They just they seem like they would they were designed by anybody but one of the most, you know, a Hall of Fame golf professional. They're very accessible. There's a lot of really cool uh, chipping swales around greens, a lot of chances for recovery. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, what turns you on, Davis Love, uh, in a golf course? What do you want to see when you're going out and playing? Because you have obviously have a unique skill set that's a little different than us, but you also understand the recreational side of it too. But if you were going to, if I was going to say, let's go play around a golf or design a golf course any way you want, what is something that, that personally appeals to you the most? Um, I like classic um, architecture. If, if there's a McDonald, Rainer, Ross, one of those old school golf courses somewhere, I want to go play it. Um, I want to see it. Um, now I'm trending the other way a little bit because I'm such a fan of core Crenshaw and all these other architects that have spun off from all the great, you know, all the guys that came from Fazio, Reese Jones, um, that have spun off, um, and are doing creative new things. I, I want to play something exciting, you know, just the, the, Frankly, the, the PGA Tour courses, we, we see some really great courses, but we see a lot of mm -hmm. just general, just really nice conditioned golf courses. But um, I remember we were playing Wingfoot one time, and Crenshaw goes, let's go look across the street. <laughs> and we went to Quaker Ridge. Yeah. Over there is Tournament, and over here is Country Club. Same architect, mm -hmm. but – look at this 25 yard openings and not a whole lot of guarded greens. And there's a few humps in the fairway or blind shots, but um, the difference between um, a classic unchanged golf course is what I like to see. We lose jobs because I go in and go, let's put it back to original. Uh -huh. <laughs> go, we want it bigger, better, grander. I'm like, no, no, you have a, whatever, a McDonald, Rainer, Ross, we can't change it. Let's, let's put it back to where it was. I think one of your descriptions of one of, one of the podcasts was um, maybe it was Lester George. It was a forensic operation, <laughs> you know, to find, yeah. to find old white. I think it was talking about old white. Yeah. That's what I like. We did one in Brunswick, uh, Georgia, an old Donald Ross. And all we had was Ross's greens plans. Right. So we dug until we found the old greens and put them back 
almost exactly, but to Jim's point, without as much slope. Um, I think that's the problem with the old courses like Oakmont. The greens mowers have gotten a lot better since they built those slopes and it's just getting faster and faster. Seminole, you know, really Seminole's fantastic, but if they get them where they can get them, it's it can be unplayable. So, you know, maybe take a little bit of the raw slope out of some of these places and make it pinnable or make it puttable for the average guy. I mean, I watched those guys in the Walker Cup at Seminole. 90% of the golfing world can't keep it on those greens, you know? Agreed. Agreed. Jim and I talk about this a lot, but a lot of it does come down to green speeds. Would you ever go into a club and say, we're going to recreate the, the original slopes here, but but you have to maintain it at like an eight or a nine? Now, I know a lot of club members don't want that, but from an architect's perspective and a designer's perspective, isn't that more interesting? Or Just in a little, just in a little bit of that, I found that you can't, you can't get a green superintendent not to get them as fast as he can get them, you know? He, he wants right. It's speed. like a, it's like asking a pitcher not to throw his fastball. Yeah. You can throw it a hundred, but we we like you to pitch at ninety two. Mm-hmm. There's no way. Yeah, it's like me. My dad said swing eighty eighty five percent. How many times did I actually <laughs> do that? Um, but yeah, well, we just did one at Belmont in um, Richmond, Virginia, right. and we left a lot of the original slopes. But we figured it's a it's a community first tee project that will not be tournament speed ever, you know? Yeah. And it's a six hole short course, um, a big putting course and 12 holes of golf, kind of a community place to play golf. It's not a, it's not a, a private country club where we can control the, the amount of rounds. We know they won't be fast. So we went more towards what was originally there. Um, but like at Brunswick country club, we knew with the modern Bermuda and old Donald Ross slopes, it was going to be too fast. So we, it said two feet here and three feet here. We just made the, the transitions. He had really cool plans. He said, you know, there's a foot on this section of the green, two feet above on this section, and then these two mounds are four feet. So you kind of knew the proportions, but you just tried to flatten the slopes in between. So I, I with you, it was nice. We're going to build 8,000 yards, but you guys only play 7,200 until there's a tournament. It's not going to happen. They're going to put, they're going to use those tees. So. Yeah, Brunswick turned out great, by the way. I, I love, I've played there a few times. And those greens are really, really fun. They're great. All we really did was tees and greens, and we would have liked to have – there's a couple of the bunkers that face one way on one hole and face the other way on it. There's some of that in his plans that we, we didn't get to put back in, but maybe one day we can gradually tweak it. But, yeah, anything classic like that, I, I, just, I just love it. You know, I'm going to all these places – and down the road, there's an old Donald Ross, and I try to – Lee Jansen is great at it. If he goes anywhere near – and Crenshaw was great at it. Mm-hmm. He drug me along with him some. I just need to be better at it to go a day early and play somewhere else to see more golf courses because, again, I'm, I'm playing tournament at golf when I'm out of town mostly and not doing enough um, traveling around and playing fun, cool old places. It's funny, Davis, when I ask – a lot of good players, they think about their game first and the architecture second. When did it, and I've asked other people this before, when did architecture become engaging for you and less about how pure your swing was? Um, well, I'm trying to get my swing really pure right now. 
because <laughs> I've been off for three and a half months with a hip replacement. But um, I try to balance it. You know, I'm. I think I'm. I'm seeing when I go play. I'm going to play a Nicholas course this week. I'm seeing what Jack had to deal with uh, playing Snow Calmy Ridge mm-hmm. or whatever the TPC course out there. Yep. Now I know Jack built this hole because there was a road and going to be a bunch of houses. You know, I don't say, what was Jack thinking? Well, he had to get from here to there. So some of the holes might be not exactly the way he wanted to design them. But um, I would say probably um, even well before we built a golf course or even dreamed of it, my dad had us drawing sketches on graph paper of holes, um, thinking about, whether it was Atlanta Country Club or Sea Island, um, how we could improve the golf courses or back the tee up here or there. We used to play, before there was a tiger, there was a tiger that um, was a caddy and a, and a ball picker guy that got all the balls out of the lakes and stuff at Sea Island. And he was supposedly when he played really long. So we played at Sea Island, the tiger tees, which meant we just went 30 yards back behind the tee box and on the sand or on the – pine straw and we played a longer golf course from the tiger tees we've been doing it since we were kids but ever since we got into it i've been trying to learn wherever i play obviously we get to go great places like harbor town or um, wingfoot um, pebble beach when you're at pebble you got a lot of options of stuff to go look at so i've been trying to learn as i play so i try to mix them the competition the swinging the club and the the building the courses try to mix them together because Derek, you know that we seek out golf courses for the for not only the entertainment, but for something different to look at. And I was just seeing if Davis was was on the search for something really different that would would take him away from from the swing and get him into just like the golden old old age architecture. Yeah, I'm always I'm always looking to. Um... Unfortunately, I'm looking a lot at pictures, but our books are old books, but I'm always looking to be inspired by the old stuff. I, my theory, and I wish I'd have gotten to talk to Pete more about it, but I think Pete Dye got a lot of his inspiration, railroad ties, strategies and stuff from the old links courses. And so I'm trying to, to learn from the old course. What, what do we like so much about Seminole and Pine Valley and Cypress Point? And how do we translate that to today's, to building golf courses today? You know, you mentioned, you know, you like to see the old stuff, uh, McDonald, Rayner, uh, Tilly. What about, can you put your finger on what it is about the old courses that, that stimulate someone like you? And I know Jim's the exact same way. He, he really has a thing for old golf courses. What is, what is missing from new golf courses that, that you can only get from an, an old golf course like Seminole, for instance? You know, that's a great, I don't know. I don't know what it is. Um, Now my son just played again, played the Colorado open. And I said, go to Colorado golf club, Mm -hmm. make sure you play Colorado golf club. And he played Cherry Hills and Colorado golf club. He goes, I love Cherry Hills. It was classic. And you can have both. It doesn't have to be old. I just want something creative, I guess what it is. You know, the pattern holes just fascinate me. So Go to Bermuda. I want to go to Mid Ocean mm-hmm. and see see pattern holes. Um, I want to I want to be in the discussion about why was this Brits fairway or was it green in the front? Um, and I I don't know why I'm I'm so 
uh, gung ho about putting them back, but it's kind of like a 57 Chevy. You know, it looks good with modern rims and a modern transmission and a modern motor, but I want it to be a 57 Chevy and not don't change it because I can go buy a Camaro 2022 and it'll haul butt, but I want the old car to look like and drive like the old car. But um, I think what in a perfect world, I would take, you know, Donald Ross or Tilly course and back all the par fours and par fives up 20 to 30 yards. You can't always do that because there's not room, but if you could make them play to the modern technology, I think you'd have the perfect world. And I've asked this question to a lot of guys building golf courses and some architects, why can't we just build what we like? You know, not copy. So what we try to do, this new course at Sea Island, the plantation course, we said it needs to look like it's been here for 100 years. Mm-hmm. Traditional, down the avenue of the Oaks, we don't need a Davis Love modern course. We need it to look like Travis was here or Donald Ross was here. or So it's kind of a combination of a bunch of things that look like we mountain lake i just think mountain lake and in in middle of florida is just one of the maybe went overboard on the square corners and the bunkers but i like i like that i think that that the people who come to sea island now and they go out and they see a square front on a green four or five times at plantation they go what what is this and then they'll say, whoa, that's like Chicago Golf Club or that's like all these famous places. I've had kids, Jonathan Bird's son said, oh, the greens, I three-putted three times the first time I played plantation. Good for you. <laughs> you know, yeah. when you go play tournament golf around the country, you're going to play on some greens with a lot of movement in it. They're not going to be flat Sea Island greens. <laughs> and um, so I think I think just that old that old stuff is just intriguing and I know Pete put a lot of strategy in his courses, but so did all these classic architects. And I want to learn how and why they did it. I think a lot of it has to do with the the land too. We we see great, really, really great properties being developed now. I mean, Donald Ross never got a, a Pacific Dune site, but back then the more sites were more commonly better. You know, there was a, it was a pasture or, or farmland that had nice movement and, I was just up in Wisconsin and saw a couple old courses. One of them was called Pine Hills in Sheboygan. And it's the, the land movement is incredible. These, these long ridges running diagonally through the fairway. So you have this, these up and overs and they were just left, you know, they, they incorporated those into the golf holes. And I just couldn't help but think, you know, if, if this property would have been developed in, you know, 1985, so they'd have had the bulldozers out there and graded the, all those natural characteristic out of the golf hole. So it, right. it is almost, I mean, do you get that sense when you travel that maybe modern architects for a period there started to do too much to the land? And that's maybe something that differentiates all the older courses from what we got for so many years. Right. They had to put a lot more thought into it to get the golf course to route 18 holes. Cause they couldn't move anything, mm-hmm. you know? Um, Westchester, when we used to play there, PJ Tour events, they couldn't move. There's weird, solid rock. And a lot of the great courses, well, again, mid-ocean, they had to find a way through the valleys of the, you know, corally, um, rocky terrain because the only place there was any dirt was down in the bottom of the hill. 
So they had to route the course around through the bottoms. And you think it's just brilliant. There's great holes. It's a great routing. There's only a few little quirky tight areas. And that was all they could. You couldn't blast or move or bulldoze that stuff. So you're right. That I think that's why we love some of the old stuff. Um, Fisher's Island, you know, it's using the terrain and making something out of out of a, a tough piece of property is why those guys were so great. Well, it's funny, Davis, that many of the times that I've worked with owners, they, they say, you're going to fix that, aren't you? And I'm like, <laughs> no, I think it's perfect. It's not broken. Uh, so how did you fend your ideas of fixing uh, like I have to defend uh, the ideas of Rainer and Tilling has? Do you find you have to tell them and have to defend it? Uh, no, it looks that's the way I want it to be. It doesn't have to be fixed. Do you struggle with that in Davis Love Design? Yeah, I think um, we find that more when we do do something that we say, oh, this is more Ross style or this is more Tillinghast style or this is more Rainer. Um, you have to defend like you say, why a square bunker with with a grass face and a flat bottom? Well, Go play here, 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 here. That's all you're going to see. Um, why, why a Barrett's green <laughs> all of a sudden <laughs> on this golf course? Well, because well, we did one at, um, at Forest Oaks in um, Greensboro, North Carolina. They played the tour event there for a couple years, and we did it on a par five, and it was downhill. And it was more fun to land that thing short and run it across the green and back up to the back hole location. And it was all, it was I, not because it was my idea or Mark's idea or whatever, but it was a fun hole. And Pete, you have to say, look, we didn't, we didn't invent this. We're just adapting it to a piece of land and it worked on this one hole. So yeah, more on the old stuff than the new stuff. Um, the 11th green plantation has a thumbprint in it in the front one of Mark's favorite terms, my brother and the, the members and the pros and everybody complains about the thumbprint green, you know, and you have to defend it every time you play, but you know what? It's the most talked about hole on the course. And people say, Oh, I made a par or I made a birdie when the hole was front left. Okay. Same thing as when I play Seminole, I go, I hit all four par threes today. You know, you have to defend. Yeah, when you go to Augusta, here's my argument for every hole location, old school, whatever, that somebody say, I go, okay, how many members hit at Augusta National, the top right hole location? How many members hit the ball up there in a day? Probably zero mm -hmm. or 3%. But everybody, nobody complains about that. You know, you just try to make your three or your four, <laughs> um, if you miss the green right. Um, so yeah, I, I feel like you have to defend yourself, but it's an easy defense. Oh, well, you don't like these greens? Go play Wingfoot, right. you know? Right. Right. And you did, you defended that, that spirit of fun because uh, everybody talks about that hole. Not that you want it to be uh, contrarian, you want it to have people have fun, but I, I hate the feeling that you have to defend it just because it doesn't fit this norm. And I was just curious how many times you've, you've found yourself in that position. Yeah, we find it a lot. Um, 
you know, the more you do, the more, but you know what? I always say most people come up and say, we really love the course. We really love the course. You want to hear, I ask all the time about plantation now because it's our newest thing, you know, near home. I wanted people to tell me, especially the tour pros, what do you think we ought to do? Um, you're right. If you could go back to Westchester and flatten out a couple of greens, the pros would like it better. Well, therefore the members would like it better. So I want to know, you know, did we push, did we push it too far with that thumbprint at plantation course or did the Redan hole that, that I did a lot of the work on, is it fair or unfair? Um, but you know, the one at Shinnecock, nobody can hit the green. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, I think you gotta, you, um, what you want is you want some holes where they can, you can make easy par, easy birdie, but you also want some holes that are challenging that you say, I survived 12 today and that made my round. I think you have to have a mix of, of risk reward and sure. If every hole is a forced carry, you know, the beginners and the high handicappers don't want to play, but if there's never a point where you can say, Oh, I got it on the green or I got it over the hill or I drove it to the bottom. If you never get that opportunity, you're not going to want to come back and play. I think you have to, it has to be fun and challenging, but fair and fair is a hard word. Davis, you mentioned a a minute ago about how wanting to, when you go and see a golf course, you want to see something that's creative or something that engages you or excites you, something a little bit different. And I've always appreciated that about your firm's work is I do think you bring that into most of your designs that I've seen at a a level of creativity and kind of really pushing the edge a little bit. And even a a course that not a lot of people have seen that's right down the road from St. Simon's Island is Sanctuary Cove, which you know, it's a public golf course. I don't know what kind of shape it's in now, but it's really cool. It's got these these Rainer templates to it, a lot of playfulness to it. There's like a little punch bowl green, a little knoll green. Uh, yeah. 10 and 11 are, are could be right out of almost like Yeman's Hall, the way the bunkers are patterned through the fairway. I mean, when I saw that for the first time, I thought, wow, these these guys really are, are trying to, to be creative and do something fun with golf in a way that I hadn't, you know, maybe even expected from a PGA Tour player. And I'll let you talk about that if you want, but I wanted to tell Jim about this golf course that I think is would be one of the best golf courses in the Southeast. And I was talking to your brother about it is, uh, and unfortunately it really never got up and running, but it's called rice fields at right. uh, Hampton Island preserve and some, and talk about creativity and really pushing the edge and lifting this golf course out of the, out of that site and applying really creative, fun, unique architectural themes to it. Um, it's a shame that more people won't get to see that. That golf course is something to behold. Well, yeah, I, I, talk all the time about Hampton Island about like, why can't we just go buy it? Yeah. <laughs> um, can we, somebody can figure out how to make this thing work. It is a cool course. It's the only one we got to do with Forrest Fessler. Yep. Um, when he was, was out looking for, you know, the next phase of his career and we got to do one with him, which was, was just great. And so we had a little bit of um, our creativity and a lot of his creativity and, and knowledge and expertise um, and a, a pretty cool piece of land. Um, well, when Sea Island was developing Frederica, I said, I've got this great idea for Frederica Golf Club. I was on the board of the company and obviously the tour pro around here. I said, we could put the clubhouse on the marsh and have it be like rice fields all leading up to the course and <laughs> everything real flat and put the tees on the, on the dikes and it would be really cool. And so they went in a completely different direction. They did. And dug a 
I like and put it made a big hill. But we got to do it at rice fields because there were there was a piece of property like that. And um, yeah, that that's a fun golf course. And um, Sanctuary Cove is a quote, I guess, Fred Couples golf course. Um, we did it with a developer. We did some work, other work for, and it was kind of too close to home. So Fred did a little bit of it, but it's mostly Mark Love and Yamans Hall and, uh, and the old stuff we like. And um, yeah, it's a fun, I mean, there's a bunch of, you know, out of the way places. We have one in Valdosta that's got a lot of um, CB McDonald kind of look to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but my goal, you know, the one thing, the one word um, that I really don't like is the signature hole. You know, I don't want you to be able to say this is a Davis Love course. I can tell when I walk on it. There's some architects that you can just walk out there and go, oh, yeah, um, this guy did that. Right. If you played Diamante in Mexico and Barefoot Landing in Myrtle Beach and the plantation course at Seattle, and you go, well, that was three completely different people. And to your points earlier is, what does the land give you? What should this course look like? So when we go to somebody to build a course, we go, here's what we think at Sea Pines. You got plenty of peat dye. It doesn't need to look like peat dye. You call it the ocean course. So we need to have some ocean, um, you know, beachfront themes to it, palm trees and wispy grasses and stuff. But here is a couple styles we think fit here. Not here's Davis Love's golf course for Sea Pines. Here's what we think fits in your piece of property. And that's obviously completely opposite than Diamante, which is, oh my gosh, we've got hillside um, links land here. Let's, let's build a links course. So we try to fit it one to the people that are going to play it and two to the land that we're given. Derek, I'm going to have to go see these places. Now I'm, I'm scheduled to go back to Yeman's hall in January. So I'm going to head down, and check out all these places you talk about. Uh, I have never been to Sea Island. I'm looking forward to seeing that. And so I'll seek these out. I'm always looking for quirky, Derek. You know that. Yeah, yeah. Davis, what's going on at rice fields right now? Is it, are they, do you know, is there an update? Are they maintaining it or is it completely overgrown? Is there anything for Jim to see if he were going to get on that property? Um, I don't know. That is a good question. I've just been up to Ford Plantation, which is right near there. Um, and I didn't get to play, but um, I got to ride around and look at a lot of the golf course. And um, that spurred me to figure out what's going on at Hampton Island. You know, we're we're kind of um, looking for the next great piece of land in the southeast that, you know, maybe we could build our kind of Mike Kaiser um, golf course. Um, and I keep saying, well, why don't we just go get Hampton Island and fix it up? <laughs> um, but, you know, we were involved a little bit, like I said, with a hoopie. Um, back when it was a different developer and we know that kind of sand belt that right. runs the I-95 mm-hmm. up to I- um, and then there's some cool river property you know south of Atlanta on the Flint River we're trying to find something um, in this area but I keep asking about Hampton Island we got to figure that place out what did you think of a hoopie from from your architectural perspective does that stimulate I you I haven't played it I, I saw it um, you know I saw the land a lot when we were looking at it way back, I think it was 2007 or eight. Um, and I've only, again, I've only seen pictures. That's on my list. I've been to Congaree, but I didn't get to play. I seem to be injured all the time when I go to these, <laughs> to ride around in a cart. Yeah, that's a problem. <laughs> yeah. I've had a lot of surgeries the last five years, but um, 
that's on my list um, to go play a hoopie and Congaree. I loved watching Congaree on TV. Um, I saw something there that one day in the tournament, they had twice as many three putts as average on the PGA Tour. And that's kind of what I got when I rode around. Like, it's going to be hard to keep the ball on these greens. Definitely. PGA Tour played at Seminole. You get twice the amount of three putts every Mm day, normal tour event. So I think that one would be fun to play. And a hoopie looks great. Um, We're getting uh, some land that will lend itself to um, an a hoopie or a a core Crenshaw looking golf course. Um, So hopefully um, I get up there and play soon and check it out. Davis. I have my favorite places that I like to visit and revisit the National Golf Links of America in the United States, uh, Yeamans Hall uh, in Scotland, North Berwick. Is there a place that just captured your imagination and you said to yourself, one day I will use this for inspiration? Is there one golf course that inspires you to create something in that architectural style of design? Well, I, I usually give long answers, but the, I'll try to give a short one. I'm inspired by the whole club at Seminole. The golf yeah. course, very original. Um, it's built to those two big sand dunes in the flat yes. place. Middle. Yes. But the clubhouse, the, the head professional, who I guess is soon to retire or about to retire, Bob Ford, just mm-hmm. is as classic as it gets. And when I go in that clubhouse or onto the go- onto the grounds, I know so many people through golf that are members there that that's just a place that inspires me that I want to be or I want to I want to help create a club, build a golf course that a club would be like that that it's really good players that love to play golf and they love their golf course. So that inspires me. Right now, I'm frankly, and I've told this to a couple of people we're building courses for. I would want Ben Crenshaw, Bill Core to build me a golf course. I just played um, out at um, uh, Johnny Morris's place and Crench, Core Crenshaw course there. I think they call Ozark's it um, National. Ozark National, yeah. That is the most fabulous golf course. It's inc- it's incredible, and I I would say that if you went back and let Bill and Ben start over back wherever Sandhills plantation course, that's what you would get is I think, I think um, Ozark national is just plantation course with a lot more courses under the belt and a lot more experience. It's just fabulous. And then I wish I could go back to Diamante and Mexico with that piece of ground and change a few holes. Now that I've seen, you know, how far Ben and Bill have come. Um, I haven't played Friars head and I haven't played a lot of the places they've done, but I just, Everywhere I've gone, Colorado Golf Club, I just absolutely love that look. So that is where if I get sandy or open, I'm going to lean more towards, you know, the core Crenshaw style links. Or, you know, we're seeing that from Gil or um, a lot of other architects. We want to bring Scottish golf more over here. And I think that's the the classic. We take the North Berwick or the the St. Andrews or the – um, the links that we like, I like Hillside over there. Um, bring that kind of golf over here somewhere. I think really Mike Kaiser and that kind of his movement is, um, has been great for American golf and for golf course architecture. Davis, I, I have these conversations with people all the time about 
the concept of, of challenge or difficulty in golf courses. And historically, we went through a period um, where that was the sign of a great golf course. In fact, our magazine's 100 Greatest List originally was titled in the 1960s, America's 200 Toughest Golf Courses. And it, and that was, you know, your golf course had to be challenging and difficult for it to be to be considered worthy. And I think we've come in the last few decades kind of pretty far away from that into this realm of where we prioritize fun and we value fun and the architects like, like Jim and, and his colleagues and yourself are, they understand that, that getting people around the golf course and give and offering them a chance to be successful rather than being punished and demand that they execute shot after shot is more rewarding to the, to the golfer. But what in your mind still though, especially be, because of who you are how how much how important is it for a golf course to be challenging on some level you don't want to just lay there either right a big that's the balance that we're trying to find is i always say it really doesn't matter from the tee box for 275 yards out what's out there because i'm going to fly it over it or if i'm hitting into a green i really don't care about all this other stuff if I'm 200 yards out, I'm just going to hit a five iron and I'm going to try to hit it within 20 feet of the flag or I'm going to be mad. So the average guy has to navigate. If you only hit it, if your driver goes 200 yards, <laughs> you care about all that stuff that's out there in the fairway. So I like the giving them a route to play where they can get around the green in par, you know, they're up there around the green in two or three and they have a chance to improve on their handicap. You know, if it's making pars or if it's making bogeys or um, whatever, but you're not making them struggle all day long. So if you, if I attack the whole location and I miss it short side, I'm in trouble. I might make a bogey, but the average guy can play out safe and get on the green and have his par putt and be happy. I think that's the balance. Um, there's a Nicholas course and I think, I can't really remember. It's just off Hilton Head. There's two courses there. Colleton and I can't River. remember. Colleton River. Colleton River. And there's a bulkhead on one side of the green where if you miss the green right, you're in the marsh. But if you miss the green left, it's just a chipping area. There's not a deep bunker. And I told Jack, I said, I played that course and it was so much fun because I could take on as much as I wanted. And he goes, oh, yeah, well, the members, they didn't want it to be really hard. But there was a lot of holes on the marsh or on the lake and – I just thought like Kiowa 17, if you just had fairway left at the green, the tour pros are still going to try to get it on the green and putt for birdie and take a chance on hitting the water. But the average guy could just hit it to the left of the green and, and chip it up and putt for par. I think that where it's not too boring, but it gives the average player a way to play the holes. And I think, you know, a lot of Lynx golf is like that. You just bound it along and run it up there. But if you want to, if you want to make birdies, you got to take on these deep pot bunkers and you got to play a little bit more aggressive. So I think that's why Pete's great. 18 at TPC, you can hit it down the right all you want and stay out of the water. But if you want to make birdie, you better hit it close to the lake. Because mm -hmm. all way down there and close to the lake. Um, you can't hit it out to the right and hit a four iron in there and make a birdie. So I think getting a balance where everybody can play the course and be challenged at their level, if that's the right way to say it, is, is the way to build. And that's hard to do, but it's a fun challenge. You know, Derek, uh, 
your listeners, our listeners won't know that we're on a video, but as I watched Davis move around in that chair and his hand waving and the passion, Davis, do you wish you would have started this 40 years ago, <laughs> the style of yeah. architecture and design? You know what, Jim? One thing I learned early on is when you wave your hands around at a golf course, <laughs> one 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 um, client of ours said, "Quit waving your hands around. That cost me money." Um, but you know, and I tell this story every interview I do about golf course design or every talk I give about it. Is I was standing at the Hilton Head Airport leaving the Heritage one year, and for some reason I was flying out and for some reason Pete Dye was flying out and we were standing beside each other. And I knew him from a little kid, you know, he was friends of my dad. And he looked at me and he said, so you're a golf course architect, huh? <laughs> oh yeah. Well, yes, sir. He goes, you're not a golf course architect until you get on the equipment and you learn to build them yourself. You're not a golf course architect. So Scott Sherman, our architect says, well, there's not very many architects then because hardly anybody can drive the equipment. But you know what Scott does? He floats with the little sand pro a, a green or two every time I'm with him at a project because he wants to touch it and feel it and right. be in, understand what he's asking. And Pete was just telling me, you don't know how to build a golf course. You just know what you like. Yeah. And so therefore <laughs> I've gone with Tom Weber, um, every project we've done and he coaches me on my bulldozer work. Um, <laughs> I, I want to learn to build the golf course one, because I like playing with the equipment and two, because I just want to know what it takes. Um, to do it. So I, I am passionate about it. I love it. I wish I'd have started a, a long time ago just because we've had so much fun doing it. And the people, we got to work with Bob Spence, who you guys may have, may not have heard of, that was a great friend of my dad's. And, yep. and he got to work with Paul Cowley until we went to Mexico and built a great golf course. And then he stayed. He stayed there. <laughs> he said, I like it here. Cabo's nice. Man, and two of my cousins went did the same thing. They went down there to play golf and they ended up staying. So it must be good in Cabo. And and now with Scott Sherman, who's just great. I mean, if Scott Sherman, like a lot of other architects that work with, you know, tour pros or, or bigger names, um, all the guys that came out from under Fazio or from Crenshaw or from Reese Jones, Scott could build golf courses. And if he'd have won a bunch of golf tournaments, he'd be, you know, a famous golf course architect too. So I just have a good team. You know, we have a great team at the RSM Classic. We have a great team of guys now that are working on Ryder Cup and Presidents Cups. And we have a great team at Love Golf Design. And it's not just me. It's people that um, are all working together for the same goal and enjoy being around each other. Derek, how many times do we talk about the team? And we take in the eye. Every podcast we do together. <laughs> Sorry, Davis. We talk about it all the time. You make my uh, heart warm when you talk about the people around you. That's so special to hear uh, because there's a lot of eyes in architecture. And when you said team, uh, that made me feel so much better. Yeah, I think, well, you guys, I don't know if you ever were around or met my dad, but my dad took no credit for anything. He just took credit for being a part of the team at Charlotte Country Club or the team at Atlanta Country Club or the team at Sea Island or the team at Golf Digest schools. You know, he, he was just part of, or Harvey Penix golf team at the University of Texas. Um, so yeah, it's the ultimate goal is is to um, 
to have fun doing what you're doing. And, and if you get along r- real well, surround yourself with good people that know what they're doing. I'm a little bit in the restaurant business too, but I just have good people that know what they're doing and we have fun with it. So um, there's nothing better than going out there and the irrigation guys and the drainage guys and the guys on the bulldozer and the shapers and everybody knowing that I'm not there to tell them what to do. I'm there to help. Um, when they see me getting dirty or, or, or playing with the dog or, or driving the bulldozer, they know, Hey, you know, he just wants to help us get this done. And um, honestly, if I quit playing golf, I'm going to live. I, my goal is to be like gold rush show. Like I want to live in a trailer at the golf course site <laughs> and try, drive the bulldozers. Um, so I may be in the construction side before it's done, not the architects. Look out, Jim. <laughs> He's coming for your work. <laughs> uh, that's I'm, I'm so happy to hear that because Davis, I work for Pete Dye. He was my mentor. And he said, Jim, if you want it done right, do it yourself. And he would jump off the tractor and show me what he wanted. That's how I learned from Pete and, and obviously from his son, Perry. Just learn to do it yourself. I still float my own greens. I still get on the, uh, the excavator. I still do all of that, Davis. So uh, I, I have that affiliation with you. My game is almost like yours, almost like yours. But the excavator. From five yards in. <laughs> exactly. I, I love that your passion for building it because that's what Pete Dye taught me. Yeah, I, he told me a great story at Kiowa one time about when the, they were building the course and the hurricane came in and he knew he had a couple of days before anybody could figure out what was going on. So he jumped on the bulldozer and drove it down the beach. <laughs> so uh, when we had a hurricane go through Sea Island, we had some problems at the, at the range. I go, hey, quick give me a piece of equipment out there and we'll go fix it. And they go, no, DNR has already been here. Oh, <laughs> so damn. I tried to pull the trick on the Pete taught me, but no, it's, it's a lot of fun to see something come out of, you know, the woods or the dirt and then come in to having people play golf. You know, I, I've never really built anything other than having a contractor build it for me and to, to go into a place and two years later, there's people out there playing golf and having fun. Um, it, it's really, it's very, very rewarding. And, um, you know, I, you guys have a lot more knowledge about it than I do. But again, I, I get with people like McCurrick Golf or Scott Sherman, our architect, and we have a lot of fun doing it because I'm, I'm always learning from them. And um, it's, it's a fun process to get it done. Davis, you, your business was interesting because in like 2009, 2010, when the, when the recession hit and golf struggled so much, you really just kind of stepped back and put hit pause on on the design side of your company. And then, you know, it's been in the last few years that you've been active again. During And, and you you mentioned Belmont, which just opened up. You also just uh, completed Birdwood uh, Golf Course at uh, University of Virginia as well, which um, I haven't seen it yet, but the early feedback from our panelists are they're quite enthusiastic about it. Did you... Did your outlook on architecture change at all in that interim when you kind of pulled away from the business and all of a sudden you're getting busy again and, and picking up projects? What Did you use that uh, time off, so to speak, in any kind of constructive way, or did you come back with a, a refreshed view on the field? Um, well, we were, we were taught early. You know, we didn't need to 
to build a big gigantic company with a bunch of employees and a bunch of equipment um, and have to do work um, to survive. You know, we were trying to take jobs, you know, obviously in the beginning we took some jobs just to get a job and, and it wasn't the greatest piece of land or the biggest budget, but um, you know, we did the best we could at every place we'd been. And then, yeah, the recession, um, we just had to kind of sit back, you know, a, a Hopi um, turned out great. It's disappointing. We didn't get to, to build that. Um, we lost a few jobs in there. We were just kind of getting on a roll after um, some, some good projects, but now I think it's been a blessing that we had a little break. You know, obviously I was going right on playing golf. So I was plenty busy. Um, Mark was caddying and building a golf tournament. And, but um, yeah, we've created a, an even better team now. Um, it got us linked up with Scott Sherman and um, started over. You know, we, we obviously were doing a lot of renovation work when there wasn't this big buzz about new golf courses, but now that seems to be picking up again. Obviously the, the real estate market drives a lot of the golf course design um, to two of the places that we were talking to right now, it's, it's more real estate driven memberships are up everywhere. So they need more golf courses. So um, yeah, you're gonna have ups and downs in any business. So I think we, uh, we took advantage of the downtime and um, came back stronger. Since, since we've got you here and you're talking about mentioned what makes a good match play golf course, the difference between, you know, uh, setting it up for a recreational player versus someone like you, what, in your opinion, for, for you personally, what are some of the most, your favorite golf courses to drive the ball on? Wow. That is a, that is a great question. Um, opposite of my friend DJ Singh, who we played a day apart, um, Royal County down and he said he didn't like it. And I said, I loved it. <laughs> um, I like the challenge of the blind shot or the uncertainty shot. I think a big wide fairway that, us open that kind of sweeps away from you and you can see it i i tend to get dialed in um but i like the challenge of of driving it at places where um you can't really always see exactly where it's going to go um but a particular a particular course um that i like to drive it on would be hard hard one to come up with i would say pebble beach um just because the views and the scale is so big um plantation course at kapalua um same thing big scale and um hard to pick out where you actually want to hit it um and any course where you can hit 14 drivers you don't like <laughs> to club down <laughs> jack lump my teacher says you miss way too many fairways with a two iron i go yeah i like to hit my driver <laughs> good one of course with of course with 14 drivable par fours <laughs> that's a good one our 14 par fives would be nice for me um yeah first qualifier for the open championship i gotten to know sir michael Benalek a little bit and i got over there and i was playing a course called fair haven and it had six par threes and six par fours and six par fives. And I said, did you have anything to do with me qualifying on a course where I played 12 par fives in, in two rounds? Oh, maybe, maybe a little. Just a little bit. <laughs> Thank you, sir, Michael. Par fives. Yeah. My last question to Davis was, my mentor was Pete Dye. That's where I first got started. 
Davis, you've mentioned Pete Dye several times in our discussions today. Could you honestly look at him and say that was somebody I inspired or aspired to be? Um, you know, Jim, everything that I did in golf is, is just because of my dad. Um, he was friends with Pete Dye, and I won a, my first golf tournament on a Pete Dye golf course. So, therefore, <laughs> I was continually blessed with Pete Dye knowing who I was. And when he came to a golf tournament, whether it was at Kiowa or TPC, well, Sawgrass, or where else, uh, New Orleans, or wherever Hilton had, he would come and walk a few holes with me because it's that awkward. What I'm just here. What am I supposed to do? Well, I know Davis. I'll go walk. I'll go walk a few. Um, so I was very blessed to be around him. And then we got lucky that there were some projects that he was either close or that we were involved with like barefoot. So I got to, to build one right beside him and see him some there. Um, PGA of America dinners, things like that for, as a past champion, I got to see Pete and Alice but again, it's just because of my dad, you know, I just, I knew Pete. So I didn't know, I did not grow up wanting to be Pete Dye or be a golf course architect. Um, I didn't want to be a Ryder cup captain. I didn't want to be in the hall of fame. I just wanted to play golf and win golf tournaments, but cool. because of dad, because of um, the path that uh, I've been blessed to be on, I got to know, I mean, how many people, you know, has he put out from underneath him, including Scott um, yeah. that just, idolize the guy and yeah. i hate it that i didn't take more advantage of it you know um yeah. go ride around more with them but i but hey i have to say tom fazio every time he came to sea island to work he called me and i went and walked around with him reese jones the same thing and that was only because of my dad as well but i had the benefit of a little bit of the entree or the introduction to these guys when i went out on tour jack nicholas Arnold Palmer, Tom Kite, Ben Crenshaw, anyway, they all knew me, but they knew my dad. They knew my dad, so they knew me. So yeah. I had to meet all these guys. So, um, yeah, I've just been I, – um, I, I look at Pete like Harvey Penick. I didn't get to spend enough time with Harvey Penick, but I heard Harvey Penick all the time from my dad, and I heard yeah. Pete all the time from my dad. So I'm blessed for the influence. Cool. Thank you. Well, that was a good one to end on. Thanks for taking time out of your schedule to talk to us. And hopefully this was a nice diversion from all the other things you have going on. Yes. Look forward to uh, listening to all your podcasts and learning more about the architecture that I love. Good, good luck on your recovery. I all hope right. you're hitting them 500 yards uh, down that open fairway. I will. Thank you. Thank you. Good, Thank good you. luck next month up at Whistling Straits too. Thanks. Agreed. Jim, that was everything and more that I could have hoped it would be. One thing that I know the listeners uh, couldn't see it, we have our video cameras on because we record on Zoom, was how uh, engaged and how, how enthusiastic Davis was when he was talking to us. Y again, like uh, maybe I'm, I'm always a little starstruck about someone speaking to someone of, of his stature, but you know, you expect him to be like, you know, not, not interested or, he, you know, we're just uh, one you know, chunk of time on his busy schedule, but, but he was eager to talk to us. And, and when we're engaged with him and, and speaking, you know, he was, he was excited to talk about golf courses, not just his own golf courses that he's designed, but about 
all aspects of design in, in general. And there's, I think his enthusiasm was 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 evident. Um, and j- so just to go back and tie it into what we were talking about, this concept of length. I, one of the comments that he had that I thought was really interesting that I I thought we should could address was we we were curious about how length factors into his approach on design and the ability as a PGA Tour player and, and he, going back to when he was a, a teenager being able to hit the ball so far off the tee and obviously was with their irons and in the greens too but off the tee he said what's between the tee and 275 yards out doesn't matter at all to me or a, a tour player because we're just going straight over the top of it but I think he understands that that real design comes between zero and 275 because it's a very small percentage of the people that can ignore all that the rest of us really have to take into account what is in between there how it's arranged where our lines are what we can achieve and you know his core at his courses there is a lot of interest and and strategy needed to negotiate those two first 275 yards so you know if our question was is he you know a jack nicholas who you know is only is has a hard time or i should say let me back up in the early part of nicholas's career there his reputation was he had a very hard time envisioning somebody who wasn't jack nicholas so (laughs) so you know he might not have not have had a lot of sympathy for for zero to 275 davis isn't like that 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 answered our question i think we knew where the answer was anyway but but there's a lot of design and strategy involved in those first 275 yards and and you know, it's it's evident talking to him that he understands that. Agreed. And when you when you bring up the point about if, if people could see how he was so animated, uh, I think we made a mistake and and having him sit in that chair uh, to talk <laughs> to us. I think he would have been much rather outside scratching his his uh, foot in the sand like Pete Dye or or or. But the way he waved his hands around, I was like, this guy's going to come out of the chair soon. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was impressed by that. But what I was more impressed with was that he we asked him about uh, his influences and it was really his father, his father that that led him down that road uh, into the into the golf world. And his father introduced him to Pete Dye and him hanging around the Hilton Head area uh, uh, during the 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 Pete Dye, Jack Nicholas design of, of Hilton Head and, and all of the things that, that were involved with what Pete was doing and that Davis was, you know, winning at Sawgrass when, when that was the iconic design of all time for Pete, just hanging on his, uh, on his shirt tail, wondering, you know, could I, I don't know, could I be a Pete Dye? Uh, would, would my career end up being uh, as Pete had done? Uh, given up the insurance salesman route and gone to the iconic Pete Dye designs. Would Davis Love, can Davis Love, would Davis Love give up the idea that uh, golfing and, and the skill of hitting the ball is, is irrelevant and, and maybe I want to reach the, the next echelon of design? I wonder if that's what he was thinking. But Damn, he could not stay in that chair. He was all over the place. He was ready to get out there and go. I could tell it. Yeah, that'd be fun to uh, go on site with him sometime. And I wonder <laughs> if going back to you know his interactions with Pete Dye that you just mentioned, if I wonder, I we didn't ask him this directly, but I wonder if if that model of the way that 
die always build golf courses. Like I said before earlier, um, you know, taking on one or two projects at a time, you know, not overextending yourself, really sinking your teeth into what you're doing and being present in the mode of construction. Now, Davis said he's only now uh, kind of getting on machinery and becoming right. an operator and he's right. excited about that. But, you know, and Dai did that, you know, from early on. But the, sure. the mo- I wonder if the mo- the Dai model of really entrusting the design process to your associates and the people in the field and getting feedback from everywhere and working with talented people rather than handing a handing the blueprints and grading plan over to uh, different sets of contractors if that die model influenced the way he runs his own business i i don't know if it was conscious but there are certainly some similarities there there is similarities and and uh, how easily he could have been swayed by pete die the iconic pete die but you know derek he talked about his brief uh, working relationship with Forrest Fesner before he passed away. Mm-hmm. And he talked about working with Paul Cowley at Diamante Dunes, but Paul decided to stay out West uh, on the Pacific ocean. And now recently uh, working with Scott Sherman, who I know uh, from the dye designs era, each one of those people contribute to Davis love and Mark loves design in their own way, Forrest Vesner, very creative. Paul Colley doing what he does. And now Scott Sherman in the field, scratching the dirt. Uh, It had to wear off, but it had to shine, not wear off, but it had to shine for Davis to to emulate Pete's existence of building it one at a time, having great talent around him. And he said it several times, you know, we, uh, us, uh, the group, uh, no I in Davis Love. I always bring that up, that these these guys, Forrest, Fesler, Powell, Paul Cowley, Scott Sherman, they were all uh, important uh, uh, parts of his of his design team, as well as his brother, Mark, who, who I met, as I said, and uh, pretty grounded, Derek, pretty grounded. Absolutely, very grounded. Yeah, working with talented shapers, that, that comes across in the product. Um, we talked a little bit about, well, we, we spent some good time talking about this project, Rice Fields at Hampton Island Preserve, south of Savannah. And yes. and I I still maintain it. it's one of the most exciting golf courses in the southeast. If if anybody, you know, ever resurrects it, so it, it can be played again. The architectural features out there are very Mike Stransian and, and fun. And that's because... As Davis said, and you just said, Forrest Fesler was one of the main shapers on there. And Forrest Fesler worked with Mike Strands, and, and they were partners. And Forrest was able to bring that sense of exuberance and um, risk-taking and, and being creative in the shaping process and kind of taking golf, stretching it out, you know, and kind of creating these these Hall of Mirrors types of looks around the golf course at, at Hampton Island Preserve. And, and that's why it's... You know, that's why that's why my affinity for that golf course is, is so high. And then Paul Cowley, and I'll, I'll direct listeners. I had Paul Cowley on the Feed the Ball podcast, episode fifty six. We spent a lot of time talking about the projects that Paul worked on and uh, with with uh, the Love Group, including Diamante. Paul uh, was instrumental in the kind of the the really kind of neat, quirky things about uh, the the Love Course at uh, Barefoot. Is a barefoot landing in Myrtle Beach. Yes, they incorporated. They they built a a, a faux historic uh, lodging, a brick lodging, and then they kind of crumbled it down and, and had that be a part of one whole. Uh, the Patriot in South Carolina. They they manufactured an old historic uh, war fort 
that they incorporated portions of holds on. And that's the kind of just the creative element that, that uh, you see in uh, Davis Love's courses. And it's because these, these shapers who have this special ability, they bring this to the project and, and Mark and Davis recognize good ideas when they see them and are willing to give the, the shapers that freedom. And that's, that goes back to what Pete Dye did as well. Pete was uh, famous for that. He, several times put his hand on my shoulder and, and, you know, directing me not with the plan set, but with his hand on my shoulder, making sure that, that uh, the creative juices were going to be flowing, you know, Jim do this and Jim do that. And, you know, making sure that he was in close contact with me. So, so that I got the sense that, uh, you know, he was as amped up about doing the golf hole and wanted me to have that same, that same energy. And Derek, you do not get that from a set of plans, handing it from one person to another. Here, build this for me. You get that energy. You get that passion. You get that hand-waving that Davis Lover's doing in his office while we're talking to him. Uh, Pete Dye, with his hand on my shoulder, directed me to give me that energy to get out there and build something cool. And that's the difference. No plans, no energy. With Pete on your shoulder, with Davis Love and Mark Love uh, asking you, asking Forrest, asking Paul, asking Scott to to dream with them, given the energy to do that, the guys that I work with, the shapers that help me, give them the energy to do that. That's how great golf courses are built. They're not they're not built by a a, a, a set of plans. Derek, sorry, sorry. I remember. Uh, having a conversation with again, keeping it in the in the Dye family, a, a conversation with uh, Chris Monty, who uh, works with Bobby Weed. This was 15 years ago, and I asked him like, "Well, who who do you guys look up to in the design field?" And one of the first uh, places that he went to was David. He said Davis Love, and it surprised me at the time. I said, "Really?" Because I, I wasn't as familiar. I hadn't seen as much uh, of their work. And he said, "Yeah, because they have." The name brand at the top, everybody knows who Davis Love is. That gives them a marketing advantage and a sales advantage. But they also have uh, a, a very small crew that they work intimately with, and they're really they use really talented shapers and, and give them the freedom to create. And I thought that was that was uh, a really kind of a nice compliment from somebody like inside the industry. And and they do have the secret weapon at the top though, and that's Davis Love. And that name alone, and his presence, and his ability to communicate, as we just witnessed, um, will get them in the door for a lot of jobs. And I'm really looking forward to seeing. Uh, if they can get some more new work coming up. They just redesigned the course at the University of Virginia, Birdwood. They just redid Belmont in Richmond, which uh, was uh, famously an old uh, kind of decrepit Tillinghast course that uh, the operators of the course chose to to preserve and restore faithfully 12 Tillinghast holes and take the other six and convert them into a, a, a very youthful, fun, short course, expand uh, the, the practice facilities, build a giant Himalaya-style putting green, and that's the home of the first tee of Richmond now, and they're bringing in all kinds of kids and all kinds of newcomers to experience the game in, in new ways, probably that, that might not have stepped on that property if it was just a straightforward renovation. Maybe we lost a little something historically there, but what we gain is future generations and a lot of a lot more community involvement and interaction. They did that. Scott Sherman was instrumental in shaping those holes. And and so th- these are the kind of new projects they're getting. And I'm wondering if Davis will be able to shepherd in some some uh, some new projects, not renovations, new land, new landforms. Um, and I'm kind of excited to see what that company can do if they do get some new projects. 
And, you know, uh, I'll throw this at you real quickly. Do you think Davis Love, Mark Love, the new team, Scott Sherman, the new team, could they, could they have done the Sandhills in the 90s? Could they have done uh, the work in, in, in Florida at Streamsong? Could they have done some of the things that, that others were doing? Maybe it is Diamante. Diamante. Maybe that is their calling card for, give us a chance. We'll show you what we can do. But the one thing I will say, uh, there's no way to answer that, but the one thing I will say is they understand restraint. On one hand, when the site calls for it, they can get very creative, but they also understand uh, not gilding the lily, not pushing too hard, not injecting uh, your own viewpoint and personality on a site, taking what the, I think they understand taking what the land gives you. I think they would have done well on those, those great natural sites. I think they do even better on a great natural site like that today than they probably would have in the 90s because frankly, <laughs> you know, when they started their company, there was, Sandhills was just opening. We didn't have a lot of examples of, of the potential of those kind of properties, but would they do a great job on a site like that now? Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. And just that just uh, no disrespect to any golf course architect, but that just tells you, and I'm speaking of the Sandhills project, the restraint that just tells you how far ahead of time Coor and Crenshaw were oh, yeah. in the design uh, reality of, of restraint so far ahead of the time. And is radical. I think you're right. <laughs> it was radically simple. The simplicity was radical. <laughs> and, <laughs> and you said that Davis and, and his brother, Mark, uh, I'm willing to take on that challenge. Uh, we all are, uh, Derek. Jim Urbina is willing to take on that challenge. All the young kids that have come up through uh, the dyes and the and the Gil Hanses of the world, they're all wanting to get that chance. But I think Davis Love with that name, as you said, that name, Mark Love with that name, they, they may get a chance first. I'll be curious to see what they do um, from now on. But they've already set, set the tone for what they, they have done, and uh, it's good. It's good. They have a body of work to look at, and it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty unique. It's pretty yes. exciting. It's pretty creative. Uh, so th let's wrap this up, Jim. That was great. I think um, both of you are, are are happier people because we got to speak with, <laughs> spend some time talking <laughs> with Davis Love. Just as a, a quick uh, customer service note, I mentioned that Paul Cowley uh, was on episode 56 of Feed the Ball. If you enjoyed this conversation and you want to get uh, dig more into the Love portfolio, I, I had Mark Love on for episode eight, one of my first guests on this show. And Scott Sherman was on episode uh, 65. So we can get the uh, the 360 degree view of Love Design Company with this and, and those other past uh, productions. I enjoyed the talk. I enjoyed watching the animation of Davis in his office. It looks like he was ready to tear the walls down to get outside. <laughs> that was cool. Uh, the listeners don't get to see that, but it's about passion, Derek. Once again, we find that person that has that passion like you and I share. Uh, it's awesome. It's awesome. Well, Jim, I know you have the passion and uh, I'm passionate about doing these podcasts. So I want to thank everybody for listening and we'll catch up with you in the next episode. Thank you, Derek.